Peace be upon you. So one of the key tenets of a believer that's so obvious that almost doesn't need to be stated is that we're not supposed to lie and we're not supposed to bear false witness. But there's a form of lying that I know I'm guilty of, I'm sure many of you are as well, that for some reason it's easy to overlook, it's easy not to acknowledge, it's easy to not give it the same level of attention as we would other forms of lying. And what I'm talking about is intellectual dishonesty. We each have beliefs that we hold, both religious and non-religious, that we consider to be true. And it's a scary thought to think that certain understandings we have, certain beliefs that we hold to be true, might not be so. So rather than try to understand where is it that we have these shortcomings, where is it that we can refine to come to the correct understanding, it's easier to ignore them. And the way we do that is by depicting the counter-argument or the criticism towards our belief in a poor light, to give it the weakest standing, to present it in a way that it would seem ridiculous for anyone to believe. And this is not a characteristic of a submitter. A submitter loves the truth and would love any opportunity to perfect the religion and their understanding, to grow in righteousness. In 43.78 it reads, We have given you the truth, but most of you hate the truth. We all consider ourselves virtuous, we think we're on the side of righteousness, and we try to avoid this disconnect that certain of the beliefs we have may not be true, or not entirely true, or need to be refined. One of the quotes I love, it says, don't believe everything you think. Just because you have an idea, you have an understanding, doesn't make it correct. We have to test and validate that against reality. And one of the definitions of truth that I love the most is that is truth is that which does not change. If we think we have the truth, the absolute truth, then that means there's no evidence that will change our belief. But as submitters, we are constantly learning and evolving our beliefs. So if we hold it stagnant, we're only hurting ourselves. You know, foundationally, our belief in God in the last day and leading a righteous life should never change. But as we learn, our understandings should continue to evolve and progress. But the only way that's going to happen is by being receptive to different points of views. You know, most people, when presented with a differing point of view, will become immediately defensive. They see the different point of view as a personal attack. And this isn't correct because, again, if someone is presenting us with the truth, we benefit. And it's worth our effort to refine our understanding. In 8.8 8, it reads, For he has decreed that the truth shall prevail and falsehood shall vanish in spite of the evildoers. In 17.81 it reads, Proclaim the truth has prevailed and falsehood has vanished. Falsehood will inevitably vanish. If our beliefs are true, they will stand on their own. And if they are being criticized, we gain from the criticism because we can refine our understanding and perfect our religion. The truth doesn't need to, us to exaggerate or to fabricate or morph the other side of the argument to make it seem more appealing and more correct. It's tempting to demonize the other side before we assess the validity of their argument. Oftentimes people believe that my side is right, the other side is a terrible human being, or they can't perceive how a decent human being can have a difference of an understanding than they do. They think that anyone who disagrees with them is an idiot. They can't be right. They must be stopped. We need to separate our beliefs we hold from ourselves as individuals. This form of tribalism will not draw us any closer to God. If our pursuit is the worship of God alone, to seek the truth, to find the truth, to perfect our religion, to figure out where is it that our ideology, our understanding is inaccurate and how can we refine and perfect that, that is what's going to drive us closer to God. In 4.135 it reads, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable 
and observe God when you serve as witnesses, even against yourselves or your parents or your relatives. Whether the accused is rich or poor, God takes care of both. Therefore, do not be biased by your personal wishes. If you deviate or disregard this commandment, then God is fully cognizant of everything you do. So God is telling us that, and this is in the concept of uh, serving as witnesses, but when we're debating with someone, what we're doing is we try to reframe their argument into the poorest representation, into the most ridiculous kind of uh, interpretation. And when we're doing this, we're falling short of this commandment, and we're not being equitable. God is telling us we have to be absolutely equitable, and that we shouldn't be biased by our personal wishes. When someone presents a differing viewpoint or a counter-argument to something that we hold true, rather than just bashing the individual and the person and presenting it in the, the weakest form of the argument, what we should do is give it an equal footing and give it the credence it deserves. If it's false, it's going to become blatantly apparent. But if there's any ounce of truth to it, we benefit from that message. And it reminds me of the believing Egyptian in Surah 40, when he told Pharaoh, he said, if Moses is a liar, that's his problem. But if he's telling the truth, you benefit from the truth. By being equitable, by being fair, by giving people the respect that they deserve for the understandings they have, all we do is we benefit and grow because it perfects our understanding. God tells us in 16.125 how to deal with people when we debate with them. It says, you shall invite to the path of your Lord with wisdom and kind enlightenment and debate with them in the best possible manner. Your Lord knows best who has strayed from his path, and he knows best who are the guided ones. Debate is something that it's, it's good for us. It grows our understanding. It grows, it refines our belief. But we have to do it in the best possible manner. And it's tempting when we debate with others to frame their argument in the weakest form imaginable, or even worse, to twist the other side's viewpoint to make them seem ridiculous that you know, only an idiot would believe such a thing. Doing this tactic, it's called having a straw man argument. And when we do this, we're being intellectually dishonest. We are framing the other side in a manner that they are not representing. We're putting words in their mouth. And by doing so, we're bearing false witness. In Surah 5 verse 8, it says, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses. Do not be provoked in your conflicts with some people into committing injustice. You shall be absolutely equitable, for it is more righteous. You shall observe God. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. And you see God reiterating the importance of being absolutely equitable. And it tells us, it warns us, it says, Do not be provoked by your conflicts with some people into committing injustice. Injustice is treating people unfairly. And when we misrepresent their argument, their viewpoint, to make our viewpoint seem stronger, more credible, we're committing an injustice. When we lie, we're revealing our insecurity and trying to preserve our egos. We have to create the strongest argument for the other side, one that they agree with. And then once they agree with that argument that we've fully represented it, then you can dismantle it piece by piece and see where does it fall short. At the same time, if their argument has any ounce of credibility, it's going to allow us to draw closer to the truth. And if it has no truth to back it, 
then it's going to fall down on its own. And it doesn't require us to exaggerate the truth, to stretch the truth, to give a false representation of what the other side is portraying. Another common example of intellectual dishonesty is an ad hominem attack, where you attack the character of the person rather than the argument that's being made. And this is what Pharaoh did to Moses. When Moses presented the proof to Pharaoh and demanded to let the children of Israel go, Pharaoh, rather than addressing the arguments and the proofs, attacked Moses' character. He said, you're a fugitive. He said, you can hardly speak. You have the speech impediment. He called him crazy. And again, this is a cheap way of circumventing the facts at hand. And rather than seeing, is there any credibility to what's being said? Pharaoh's response was to criticize the personal by assassinating the character of Moses. It gave no credence to what arguments he was being made. And again, this is intellectually dishonest. We see a similar example with Noah. When the first people who believed Noah weren't of the, the status that the leaders expected, they used that as a post to disregard Noah. In 26.111 it reads, They said, How can we believe with you when the worst among us have followed you? So by saying, look, the individuals who followed Noah are astray, they're the worst individuals uh, amongst us, it was a, a way for them to create a cop-out from listening to the arguments that Noah had to present. Another thing that we should do as submitters is we have to be lenient. We can't hold every single argument and every single uh, word uh, and scrutinize it under a microscope. Typically what happens is when someone makes an argument, there's an underlying thesis that they're shooting for. And one of the ways that, again, it preserves our ego, it makes us feel more credible, makes us feel like we're on the side of righteousness, is we pick the weakest aspect of the argument. And rather than addressing the argument as a whole, we take some tidbit of that and we make that our focus. And we see an example in the Quran of the Prophet. In 66 verse 3, it says, The prophet had trusted some of his wives with a certain statement. Then one of them spread it, and God let him know about it. He then informed his wife of part of the issue and disregarded part. So it shows that, you know, Muhammad didn't go and start attacking every single aspect of the statement that was made. He picked the underlying theme, what was the, the crucial aspect, and he addressed that first. And a lot of times you see in a debate, Two sides make an argument, and rather than addressing the, the overall theme, the, uh, the foundation of the argument, they'll go find some tangential piece, some small sentence that was, could be misconstrued or was poorly explained, and they attack that, and they leave the entire foundation of the argument uh, intact. And this is, again, it's, it's one of these things that if your only objective is to feel superior to feel like uh, your understanding is far ahead of the other side, then it's great. But if your intention is to seek the truth, to be able to uh, find out what is it that is actually true, then you wouldn't do such a tactic. When we are being intellectually dishonest, we are attempting to exalt ourselves, to make our argument look stronger than it is. And again, the truth doesn't need us to fabricate, to exaggerate, to morph uh, the other side or our own position in order to seem more credible. And when we do this, again, all we're doing is we're boosting our ego. And in 2883 says, we reserve the abode of the hereafter for those who do not seek exaltation nor corruption. The ultimate victory belongs to the righteous. God is saying, don't seek exaltation, that the victory belongs to the righteous. 
we have to do our utmost to maintain righteousness, to be equitable, to be just, to represent people in a proper light. When we misconstrue, when we misrepresent, when we twist what the other side is saying in order to make them seem foolish, all we're doing is we're exalting ourselves and we're not acting righteously. In 53.32, it says, They avoid gross sins and transgressions except for minor offenses. Your Lord's forgiveness is immense. He has been fully aware of you since he initiated you from the earth and while your embryos in your mother's bellies. Therefore, do not exalt yourselves. He is fully aware of the righteous. So now I want to draw on a historical example to show that when we are being intellectually dishonest, we only hurt ourselves. And the reason I want to use a historical example is because it's hard for us to put a idea we have today with all the bias we could potentially be holding. And it's easier to look at something in the past that now we can all unanimously agree on, hopefully. So this has to do with a, a maternity ward in 1846. And there was a young doctor who realized that the amount of deaths that were taking place during child labor was five times higher at the hospital with the, uh, the male doctors than it was when the women were giving birth with midwives. And he wanted to understand why. And at first he thought maybe this had to do with the priest uh, because in the hospital when someone dies, they come ringing bells that this scared the mothers and it caused them to go into this fever and same thing with the children that caused this uh, feverish death. And then he that wasn't the case. So then he uh, speculated maybe it had to do with the position that the mothers were when they gave birth, and he tested that, and that wasn't the case. And then he stumbled on a clue. One of the pathologists who was doing an autopsy on the, uh, the, the mother that's uh, recently passed, he died of the same ailment. And he speculated that maybe there was something in the corpse of the body that was spreading this disease. And back then, they didn't understand germ theory. But what he knew was many doctors, prior to going in for uh, delivery, what they would do is they would work on autopsies with cadavers. And maybe there was some contamination that was taking place. So he recommended the doctors to use a chlorine solution to uh, wash off any bits that might have been any residue that might have been left over from their autopsies. And back then, they didn't understand germ theory, but, you know, he, he tried this. And again, what he saw was amazing that the deaths in the hospital plummeted. Now, you would think the doctors would be fully embracing this argument, this uh, way of being able to solve this disease that was rampant among the hospitals for uh, newborn uh, uh, children and their mothers. But he got the complete opposite pushback. And the argumentation was, gentlemen have clean hands, doctors are gentlemen, therefore doctors do not have dirty hands. <laughs> and it seems ridiculous now, but this was the argumentation, that they thought that this was a direct attack on them as a person, that uh, the doctor who recognized this pattern was accusing them of having dirty hands. And this isn't the uh, attribute of a gentleman. And it wasn't until decades later that germ theory came into play and then doctors understood that they needed to wash their hands before uh, operating and uh, performing such services. Now, this is so blatantly obvious that we have to wash our hands, but why was it that these intellectual elite of their time couldn't come to comprehension with the evidence that was presented to them? Could it be that they were intellectually dishonest, that they were concerned about the implications, that they were the ones, the root cause of the death of these mothers and their children? And because they didn't want to accept that, they were willing to be blind to it and continue spreading disease because of the implications. Now, this is the consequence of being intellectually dishonest. We only hurt ourselves. We only propagate the falsehood that we're holding on to. 
someone who's sincere, someone who believes in God, is going to look for every opportunity to refine their belief, to come closer to the truth, to understand God's message as closely as they can in all aspects of their life. Another example that's a little more lighthearted was a couple years ago in the NFL. This is the American Football League. There was a accusation against the New England Patriots that they were deflating the uh, the football um, in order to be able to make it easier to throw and catch. Now, what's I could care less what the, uh, the the details were if they're actually at fault or not. But what was fascinating was when they ran a nationwide poll to see who in the population thought that the New England Patriots and specifically their uh, their quarterback Tom Brady was guilty. Seventy-five percent of the population across the entire nation believed that he was guilty that there was malintent, that he deserved the penalty he got. What's fascinating is in four states, only 23% thought that he was guilty, meaning 70, um, 77% thought he was innocent, that there was no foul play, and um, this was uh, overblown. Now, what's interesting is those four states are the four states by which uh, are the closest proximity to where the New England Patriots play in New England. So Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. This is where New England resides, and these are the four states that are the closest to where the New England Patriots uh, play. Now, ask yourself, were these people being honest? And this is nationwide and also uh, the individuals within those states. Someone clearly has a bias. When you see a sway of uh, opinion that much, you can't say that both sides are acting fairly or looking at the evidence fairly. And this is what makes it so critical is we have to realize we have this bias. We have this uh, stigma where we elevate our belief and we completely disregard or tear down any belief that's counter to what we hold true. So this being said, how do we tell? Because one of the aspects is if we're going to debate, how do we know if it's worth debating with the person if they're not receptive, if they're not uh, treating the situation with an even footing? And there's a concept that's called falsification. And it's very simple. You ask the other party, what evidence would you need to see in order to convince you that your understanding is inaccurate? And um, God gives us a similar example in the Quran. And he does this numerous times. He says, if you have better guidance, then, you know, present it. In 2848, it reads, now that truth has come to them from us, they said, if only we could be given what was given to Moses. Did they not disbelieve in what was given to Moses in the past? They said, both scriptures are works of magic and copied one another. They also said, we are disbelievers in both of them. Say, then produce a scripture from God with better guidance than the two, so I can follow it if you are truthful. So what God is doing here is he's presenting, he's telling us to present the counter argument that if someone is coming and saying that the Torah or the Quran doesn't provide guidance, that our response should be then produce a book from God with better guidance and I'll be the first to follow it. Because how are we going to prove that this book doesn't have guidance? You produce a one with better guidance. And what's interesting is that it says a book from God. Again, Believing in God, believing the hereafter, leading a righteous life, these are kind of our axioms. These are the proofs that we know that we hold to be true indefinitely. There is no question, is there a God? There is no question that there is a hereafter. There is no question that we have to lead a righteous life. Where the questions arise is, how do we believe in God? How do we lead a righteous life? You know, what is the uh, the hereafter? These aspects, as we refine in our understanding, we're going to grow and progress. 
And I was listening to a recent debate with uh, Hugh Ross, who's a uh, famous uh, cosmologist. He was debating an atheist about the origin of the universe. And they asked the atheist, they said, what would convince you that you're wrong? And he stumbled. He avoided the question. Eventually, he said, look, if I saw evidence that proved I was wrong, I would believe I'm crazy before I would believe the evidence. And it goes to show that there was no nothing you could show this person to convince them that their viewpoint was wrong. And once you come to that realization, then you know that this person is not worth debating with. And there's a quote I love. It says, never wrestle with a pig. You will get dirty and the pig will like it. The only people that are worth debating with are those who are willing to listen. And we see this in 635. It says, if their rejection gets to be too much for you, you should know that even if you dug a tunnel through the earth or climbed a ladder into the sky and produced a miracle for them, they would still not believe. Had God willed, they would have guided them unanimously. Therefore, do not behave like the ignorant ones. The only ones to respond are those who listen. God resurrects the dead. They ultimately return to him. There is a joke. There was a psychiatrist who had a patient who was a corpse, who believed they were a corpse. And uh, for weeks, the psychiatrist would meet with him and was trying to understand how could he convince this individual that he's not a corpse. So one day he comes up with a plan. And when the uh, individual comes in, he asks him, he says, do corpses bleed? And the person goes on a huge rant on why corpses don't bleed because, you know, they don't have blood. They don't need it. This is something of uh, living beings and stuff. So he grabs a pin and he pokes the, uh, the individual and he bleeds. And the corpses, <laughs> the person's response says, oh, I guess corpses do bleed. Now, the takeaway from this is that you have to hold someone's feet to the fire to say, okay, what is it that will convince you that what you believe is inaccurate or not true? And only then... Can you have a solid discussion, a debate, an argument with someone? Otherwise, if there's nothing you can present to them that's going to convince them otherwise, then you're only wasting your time. And just like that quote, uh, you're only getting yourself dirty and the other side's going to like it. So what's the responsibility? Because a lot of times we're not in these debates. We are participants who are viewing these debates. And us as viewers, as participants, uh, people who aren't in the arena, we have certain responsibilities as well. God cites the example in 458, says, God commands you to give back anything the people have entrusted to you. If you judge among the people, you shall judge equitably. The best enlightenment indeed is what God recommends for you. God is here, seer. So if we're going to make a judgment in the sense of a debate and argumentation, we have to be equitable. We have to hold ourselves in our judgment in the same class as what we would expect the participants of the debate to, to partake in. In 2182, God gives us the example of someone who's witnessing a will. It says, if one sees gross injustice or bias on the part of a testator and takes corrective action to restore justice to the will, he commits no sin. God is forgiver, most merciful. We should call out people, irrespective if we agree with them or not, when they're acting unjustly, when they're not being equitable, when they're being intellectually dishonest. Because at the end of the day, if two people on a public platform are debating what they're looking for is confirmation from the, the the viewers whose side is right and if we see gross injustice being taken place where people aren't treating the other side equitably we should speak up in 49.6 is oh you believe if a wicked person brings any news to you you shall first investigate lest you commit injustice for some people out of ignorance then become sorry and remorseful for what you have done so god is telling us here if someone is saying hey 
This is a, don't talk to the other side. This is what their argument is. This is what their debate is. This is the points that they're making. Give that other side the benefit of the doubt to hear it from their own mouth, to have them clarify, is this what's being represented? Is this what's being said? Because if we make an accusation, a judgment that's inaccurate based on false information, the only person we have to blame is ourselves. In 1735 says, you shall give full measure when you trade and weigh equitably. This is better and more righteous. You shall not accept any information unless you verify it for yourself. I've given you the hearing, the eyesight, and the brain, and you're responsible for using them. Now, what's interesting is in the following verse in 1737, it says, You shall not walk proudly on earth. You cannot bore through the earth, nor can you be as tall as the mountains. All bad behavior is condemned by your Lord. My takeaway from this is that when we're being intellectually dishonest, we're showing that we lack humility. Humility is the understanding that, look, there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I can work on, a lot I need to improve on. If we think we're right on every single aspect, that we never have anything um, that could be inaccurate, we're being dogmatic. And this is not a trait of a believer. A believer is humble, is kind, is equitable, is just. In 2563, it reads, The worshipers of the most gracious are those who tread the earth gently, and when the ignorant speak to them, they only utter peace. In 52.26, it says they will say, we used to be kind and humble among our people. So having this element of humility is what's going to draw us closer to God. And again, we don't have to lie, cheat, uh, stretch the uh, truth in order to make it seem more appealing. The truth can stand on its own. One of the justifications for people who do such an act is that they think that the ends justify the means, that the other side is so absolutely wrong and immoral and terrible that they're allowed to stretch the truth, they're allowed to exaggerate uh, their viewpoint and discredit the other viewpoint without proper merit. And God warns us again this against this. In 375, it says, Some followers of the scripture can be trusted with a whole lot. They will give it back to you. Others among them cannot be trusted with a single denier. They will not repay you unless you keep after them. That is because they say we do not have to be honest when dealing with the Gentiles. Thus, they attribute lies to God knowingly. We should never do this. We should never be in a position where we intentionally are lying, fabricating, fibbing, uh, over-exaggerating our viewpoint, uh, misrepresenting the other side. Because if we do that and we think we're justified, we're falling trapped to what the children of Israel did in regards to their understanding of having not to be honest with the Gentiles. And at the end of the day, what we're looking for is approval from God. The outcome of any debate is determined from God. There's nothing we could say, do that's going to change that. And we have to be accepting of that. That's what it means to be a submitter. And we see this example with Joseph. When Joseph was uh, being seduced by the governor's wife, and he fled the room, and the governor saw the action, uh, someone made the suggestion that if the garment, if Joseph's garment was torn from the back, that means the wife was seducing him, and if his garment was torn from the front, he was seducing her. Now, this is a completely kind of silly way to justify blame, but it went into the favor of Joseph. Now, what's fascinating is afterwards, when Joseph maintained his integrity, maintained his truthfulness, that despite that, they still decided to throw him in jail. And we see that ultimately the truth prevails. In 1251, it reads, The king said to the women, What do you know about the incident when you try to seduce Joseph? They said, 
God forbid we did not know of anything evil committed by him. The wife of the governor said, Now the truth has prevailed. I am the one who tried to seduce him, and he was the truthful one. If we do what God expects from us, if we maintain the truth, if we are equitable, we are just, we know that we are going to be on the side that's going to be pleasing to God. So to sum it up, there's three points we need to focus on if we want to be intellectually honest. One is that our personal beliefs do not interfere with the pursuit of truth. Again, the truth can stand on its own. It doesn't require us to twist it, to exaggerate it in order to seem more credible. Two, is relevant facts and information should not be purposely omitted even when such things may contradict our own viewpoints. And the third one is that facts are presented in an unbiased manner and not twisted to give misleading representations or to support one view over the other. We have to give everything an equal footing. And again, the truth will stand on its own. Falsehood will vanish. If we solely aim to do what pleases God and trust in Him entirely, then he alone will support us. In 3.161 it reads, If God supports you, none can defeat you. And if he abandons you, who else can support you? And God the believers shall trust. In 25.33 it says, Whatever argument they come up with, we provide you with the truth and a better understanding. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.